Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Today we are not watching every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then ranking them from best to worst. Instead, on a very special Scream Scene, (laughs) we're taking the time out to do a special episode about the Hollywood Production Code the motion picture production code that was in effect in Hollywood roughly from 1934 to 1966, I think. And the reason why we're doing it is it greatly impacts cinema, but especially the horror genre. Yeah, for sure. When you're talking about genres that are targeted by censorship efforts, I think horror is definitely one that like horror and pornography. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that there's a Venn diagram out there somewhere. Yeah. We've kind of seen this a little bit in discussions about Germany. Mm-hmm. When the Nazis came to power, uh, horror was not allowed anymore. Yeah, and we've also talked a bit about censorship in the UK and how they created a whole new movie rating just for horror movies. H. Mm-hmm. And the main reason why we're kind of doing this as a separate episode is... Ordinarily, we might have covered something like this in, say, the background intro to Bride of Frankenstein, which is going to be our first post-code movie, but there's just so much to talk about that either it was going to have to take away from talking about this or take away from talking about Bride of Frankenstein, or else the Bride of Frankenstein episode would be like three hours long or something crazy (laughs) like that. So it just made sense to kind of do it as a special. Yeah. So we've sort of talked a little bit about censorship and the code and kind of hinted at it. Sarah, what do you know about the production code going into this episode? Like, what are what are some things that you know about it? Uh, well, I know that it existed before the point when it was, like, actually being enforced. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of like guidelines mm-hmm. that you didn't necessarily have to follow, but you'd get a bit of a wag of the finger if you didn't. Mm-hmm. And then I know that this is the point where they really start enforcing it. As far as, like the nitty-gritty of the code, like, what you weren't allowed to show or anything, I would presume it would be those usual types of things like no swearing or no TNA, Mm -hmm. things like that. Have you ever heard it called by another name? The Hayes Code. The Hayes Code. Yeah, that's a really common one. It's kind of a misnomer, uh, and we're going to talk about why. But first, we kind of need to have a brief overview of what censorship and the regulation of films looked like in America before this point. Sure. In 1913, the state of Ohio formed a board of censors for films that would be exhibited in the state. And this board of censors charged a fee for the films to be submitted to that board uh, and then could order the arrest of anyone exhibiting unapproved films in the state. The Mutual Film Corporation took the state of Ohio to court alleging that their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech had been violated by the creation of this censorship board. Yeah, because you basically had to pay a fee to allow you to show your film in this state. Yeah, more or less. So, by 1915, this case had reached the U.S. Supreme Court, which unanimously ruled in Ohio's favor. Really? Yeah, the exhibition of motion pictures was a business conducted for profit, and therefore it was not part of the press or an expression of public opinion, which are the things that the First Amendment 
is designed to protect. It's not supposed to just protect your ability to, like, make a buck showing movies or, or any other kind of um, for-profit commercial enterprise. Interesting. Okay. So they ruled that movies were not covered under freedom of speech and therefore were legal to censor. Okay. So uh, New York State was the next to institute a censorship board after this Supreme Court ruling. They did that in 1921. Virginia followed in 1927. And by the end of 1928, eight states had their own censorship boards. All of those states will have different cens- like will be censoring different things. Exactly. But I, I'm curious if this type of censorship to film is analogous to print or literature. At the time in the United States, uh, censorship of print, novels, literature was totally legal as well. Okay. Um, that would not be overturned until somewhere in the 1960s. We actually talked about that briefly in our very first episode when I made a joke about the Supreme Court justice who said that he knew pornography when he saw it. <laughs> um, that was part of the case of determining, you know, should literature and stuff be censored. Eventually, film censorship was overturned as well, but it wouldn't be about till the 60s until these ideas about free speech began to be expanded to art in the United States. Um, really, the original intent was it was to protect the press and protect the ability of citizens to speak out about public opinion issues. Okay. So one of the things that was really driving the censorship boards and being created was there was a lot of political pressure to clean up motion pictures because Hollywood had been producing a lot of risque kind of films in the 1910s. There had also been like numerous Hollywood scandals of different actors and, you know, actresses being caught doing things that were scandalous in certain parts of the country. A big inciting incident was the trial of Fatty Arbuckle. Uh, are you sort of familiar with that? Um, not at the trial, but Fatty Arbuckle, wasn't he the on-screen duo with Buster Keaton? Yeah, so Fatty Arbuckle was uh, a comedian. He did work with Buster Keaton. From his name, you can tell he was sort of the, the big comedian. And um, he was at a party in Hollywood with a bunch of different famous people, and there was a lot of alcohol going around, a lot of drugs going around. This is in Prohibition, so all of this stuff is illegal. You know, it's like that apartment party in The Great Gatsby, right? Mm -hmm. When the party was over, Arbuckle was discovered in a bedroom with a young, aspiring actress who was dead. Oh, I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. so Arbuckle was charged with her murder... Uh, as well as with rape. Ultimately, they discovered uh, through the course of the trial and the investigations that he hadn't raped her, she hadn't been sexually assaulted in any way, and that he probably had nothing to do with her death at all. But it didn't stop the newspapers from going crazy with just printing kind of whatever they wanted to in terms of um, speculation. So they really um, put the screws to this guy, his career, you know, even though he was um, exonerated legally, his career was basically over. And this sort of moral outcry about how disgusting, like, the moral standards in Hollywood were, was really a big inciting incident towards wanting to clean up the industry, censor movies, this kind of thing. Sort of like any new you know, art form or form of expression, they always kind of go through this moral panic phase where, like, oh, this is the worst thing ever to happen to anything, you know? Yeah. So, the film industry found itself dealing with numerous local censor boards, uh, religious morality groups, parents' associations, 
each with differing concerns. And like you said, Sarah, it became apparent that what might play in New York might not play in Kansas. And the costs of cutting every film differently for each of those different censor boards and regions was not really a prospect Hollywood was enamored with. You know, the idea of not showing a film in a state was also not an option, you know, in terms of uh, the profitability of making movies. Um, and then there was the fact that most of these censored boards, like that initial Ohio one, charged you to get approved by them. Some charged by how many feet of film they cut from your movie. Um, <laughs> That's actually really a neat idea, because it's like charging by how much work they had to do. Right, but it also meant that the more stuff that they could find objectionable in your movie, the more money they were making. Yeah, so they it's were, not good. Yeah, they were motivated to interpret your movie badly, right? Yeah, but it, it's a smart way to make money. <laughs> In 1922, Hollywood enlisted uh, Presbyterian elder William Harrison Hayes to clean up Hollywood's image. Uh, they figured that voluntary self-censorship would be easier and more controllable than either bending to all these different local censor boards, which would be affected by constantly changing state laws, or by waiting for kind of the inevitable outcome of the federal government stepping in. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about who William Harrison Hayes was. Sure. So Hayes was born in 1879 in Indiana, and he managed Republican Warren G. Harding's presidential campaign in 1920. After Harding's election, Hayes was made Postmaster General. So, you know, he was a political campaign manager for the Republican Party. In fact, he was the chairman of the Republican National Committee at the time. Because he was chairman of the committee, he was stuck with the job of paying off all the debt that the campaign had incurred. So Hayes told wealthy businessmen that if they made donations to the Republican Party to pay down the party's debt, Hayes would reimburse them with uh, government bonds. Meanwhile, in 1921, President Harding transferred control of Navy oil reserves from the Navy Department to the Department of the Interior basically just making them the Department of the Interior's job instead of the Navy's. Trust me, this is going to come in. <laughs> It'll all make sense in a minute. Like, how, yeah, how did we get from talking about the censorship of movies to whether the Navy controls oil rigs? Okay, so these are, these are oil reserves that um, basically were federal government owned and were for the Navy for, like, you know, if a war comes out, we, we got oil for the boats. And Harding just sort of transferred the control of them from the Navy itself to the Department of the Interior. What happened after that was Harry F. Sinclair of Sinclair Oil paid Hayes $185,000 in bonds and $75,000 in cash. This is in 1921. And also gifted about $404,000 to the Secretary of the Interior, Albert Fall. And then in 1922, Sinclair Oil was awarded the lease to oil production rights at the Navy Reserves at Teapot Dome. So the resulting scandal, the Teapot Dome scandal, yeah. led to the Secretary of the Interior, Albert Fall, going to prison for accepting bribes. Uh, he was the first federal cabinet member in the United States to serve a prison sentence. Is that... Uh, where the phrase, take the fall, comes from? <laughs> no, but that's a good, <laughs> a good one. Um, 
In the wake of this scandal, Hayes resigned his position in 1922, and it was because of that that he was looking for work, and therefore accepted the job of president of the newly created Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, which was going to be a trade organization representing the major studios. Uh, it was sort of the forerunner of what is today called the MPAA, which is that thing that rates movies. Mm -hmm. So in the wake of the scandals and the moral outcry about Hollywood cinema, much was made of Hayes' conservative bona fides as both a Presbyterian and a Republican. You know, it was like, this guy's got conservative morals, he's going to come in, he's going <laughs> to clean things up. Okay. Yeah. His first goal upon taking this position was a public relations campaign designed to improve Hollywood's image, uh, encourage investors that it was safe to, you know, invest in the businesses again, and also to discourage censors and the formation of censorship boards. You know, don't bother forming a censorship board. Like, you don't need to. Our movies are clean. They're good, you know? Uh, his main duty in this regard was to persuade censorship boards not to ban films outright and to make just minimal cuts to them. I mean, that's, that's a fair compromise. Mm -hmm. He soon realized that the easiest way to do this was not to fight the censorship boards, but to find a way to get the studios to make movies that wouldn't incur those cuts to begin with. Yeah, that, that's a logical place to begin. Mm -hmm. So he began to advise the studios on how to reduce the likelihood that their films would suffer cuts by producing them to certain standards. Now, the state censor boards actually operated in secret, so it forced Hayes to guess at what standards might allow a film to undergo the least cuts from the smallest number of boards. Why would they operate in secret? The idea being that these censorship boards, like I said, their income was tied to what they could cut from you. So if they put up, like, here's our rules, here's what we're looking for, you just follow those rules, right? What they wanted to be able to do was have the leeway to interpret, well, in the context of this film, you know, this is more salacious when it might not be salacious in this other context. So we're going to tell you to cut it. You know, they wanted to just have it be a behind closed doors thing that you couldn't really question so that they would just say, nope, you need to make these cuts or else your movie's not playing in our state. I feel like that's another indication that these state boards were to make money and not for the purity of our citizens. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the problem is, is that Hayes then had to guess, like, okay, you know, I want a movie to play in New York and in Kansas and in Texas, you know, and in California, and, like, what type of content is going to incur the least number of cuts across all of these different places. So you're having to basically shake it out to lowest common denominator of morality, right? <laughs> So, in 1924, he wrote up what he called The Formula, and he also asked studios to begin submitting plots of planned films to his office to be reviewed by him in advance, so that problematic elements could be uh, identified before a movie started filming, so that you didn't have all this expense of like, oh, wow, well, that sex scene you put in there, that's, that's probably going to have to go, right? Like, you'd look at the film plot and be like, hey, maybe this movie about, like, a hooker isn't a great pick. What if she's a flower girl? Like, start making those suggestions early. <laughs> Hayes' take on film censorship could best be summed up in this piece of advice he once gave a director. 
which was when a woman crosses her legs in your film, you don't need to ask how she can cross them and stay within the law, but how low she can cross them and still be interesting. So how much self-censorship to still be interesting? Yeah, so Hayes wasn't really interested in, you know, he understood the business of movies. He understood that, like, you need to tell an interesting story and have drama and, and excite your audience. He wasn't interested in turning everything into bland Kellogg's cornflakes. He was interested in saying, like, okay, think of ways that you can still do these things without people really getting too upset with you, right? Sure. That was the idea. So by working closely with the U.S. State Department and the Department of Commerce, because Hayes had, you know, those federal government uh, connections and experience, <laughs> Hayes was able to maintain Hollywood dominance in foreign movie markets. He's a big part of why Hollywood movies, you know, go worldwide, even in cultures that don't respond well to them, right? Yeah. But his efforts to quell public outcry for increased and possibly federal censorship of film was unsuccessful. Largely because his advisory notes were non-binding and often ignored. You had a director a set of notes saying, like, oh, maybe don't have the sex scene. And the director's like, put in more sex scenes. Like, that's just how directors are, right? They're obstinate. <laughs> Aren't you a director? Listen. Uh, so in 1927, Hayes formed a committee with the heads of MGM, Paramount, and Fox, in order to come up with better guidelines. Uh, what they wrote out was 11 don'ts, which the three studios agreed to avoid, and 26 be-carefuls, which were to be handled delicately. Okay. So, only these three studios, you know, signed this, but the general idea was, you know, there was things that you just shouldn't put in a movie, and there was other things where, like, if you're going to put this in a movie, like you know, be delicate about how you portray it. Sure. Right? However, there was still no way to enforce these on the other studios or independent productions. They were still kind of just guidelines and had only been signed to by these three companies. Hayes' efforts to prevent the implementation of federal censorship were ineffectual, and once sound was implemented, the moral outcry grew ever louder. Uh, Jesuit priest Father Daniel Lord said, Silence, smut! had been bad. Vocal smut cried out for vengeance. <laughs> um, also, that is like, when he was born and his last name was Lord, he was like, yes, I am going into, like, religion. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea being that, you know, in the silent film days, you had to show something naughty. In sound, you could say naughty things and, and imply a whole bunch of stuff, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Crying out for vengeance. That being said, uh, Catholics, like Daniel Lord, were generally wary of government censorship in general about everything. Uh, they didn't really like that idea. So in 1929, Daniel Lord, as well as Martin Quigley, who was a Catholic as well, but also editor of the Motion Picture Herald, a kind of trade journal, uh, they got together and they wrote a code of moral standards for movie production. And they submitted it to Hayes, who said that when he saw it, his eyes bugged out of his head, and he proclaimed that this was the very thing he'd been looking for. <laughs> so that's why it's a misnomer to call it the Hayes Code, because he didn't actually come up with it. Yeah, he didn't write it. He just enforced it, basically. Even that's a bit of a misnomer. Okay. So in 1930, the 
studios, that is to say the MPPDA, uh, that Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association, which covered all the major studios, they agreed to adopt the code and abide by it, largely to avoid government intervention. They agreed to that in 1930. Can I ask, why are they so adverse to federal intervention? Um, because at that point, you've lost control, right? You have no control over what's going to be in your movies and what's not. Um, it's better than all these, you know, tons and tons of state boards, sure. But you're then at the whims of, you know, changing... Changing governments. Changing governments, changing laws, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you want to be in control. If you're going to be doing this kind of thing, you kind of want to be able to set the terms. Uh, A lot of industries since then have kind of taken this as an example. Um, The same thing happened in the 50s with comic books. The Comics Code Authority was self-censorship on the industry by itself. Same thing happened in the 90s with video games. The ESRB is a self-regulatory body, not a government body. Um, This really all comes down to, like, American corporate distrust of government in general, in a lot of ways. 1930, everyone agrees to the code. The code sought not only to determine what was acceptable on screen, but was also about promoting traditional values through movies. What uh, Lord and Quigley had sort of identified was that movies were a new art form. They were the most widely distributed art form. They were the most attended art form. They had the most power of any art form to influence the way people thought. So if movies could be used to promote traditional moral values, that is what would result. Okay. It was largely written with Catholic moral values in mind. Yeah, Um, definitely. And it sought to promote Catholic moral sensibilities. Why this kind of worked for Hayes and for the rest of Hollywood is that, you know, earlier I was talking about, like, the common denominator of morality. If you can appease the Catholics, usually you got everyone else. Like... (laughs) You know, Catholic moral sensibilities were so much more stricter than, you know, Protestant or Jewish or, you know, what have you, that generally if if you could get the Catholics saying, like, this is pure and good, everybody else was already saying that, right? This just reminds me of that scene in Hail Caesar. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly what this is about. <laughs> Uh, So, the code was designed to apply to all films equally. Um, An adults-only policy for some films had been discussed, but was seen as a dubious strategy that would be difficult to enforce. So, the code was largely ineffectual at first, Mm -hmm. um, for several reasons. One of them was that the men who were initially hired to enforce it were unenthusiastic uh, or underfunded and understaffed. Um, The attitude was either that, you know, enforcing it was prudish and they didn't want to, or if they did want to, there were so many scripts coming in from so many different movie studios that, like, it was just hard to keep on top of it. Right, because this is the era of just grind it out. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Yeah, exactly. However, most significantly, the Hayes office, as it was known did not have the authority to order the studios to cut anything. And final decisions on the cuts rested with the studios themselves. So, you know, you came to the code, the code said you should cut these things and take them out, then you sent that back to the studios, and the studios looked at that and went, "Eh, all right, we'll cut some of this, but the rest of this is kind of important in the movie, so we're going to keep it, we'll just take our risks with the censor boards. Sure. That was sort of the initial thought. 
So we've we've sort of touched on this in past movies where I've said like, oh yeah, they cut some stuff from Murders in the Rue Morgue because they were like, ah, this isn't going to fly, right? Um, but other stuff they've kept in because, you know, uh, we'll take our chances with it. Yeah. Yeah. What ended up happening was over the next few years, the code became a joke. Um, it was attacked in the press for its draconian statutes. Um, for example, one of the things that the code talks about is that crime should not be portrayed sympathetically. Uh, so one editorial column pointed out that a film about the Boston Tea Party couldn't be made <laughs> because the code didn't distinguish between uh, basically law and justice. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. You know, they adopted the code in 1930. What's the other thing that's happening around 1930? It's the Great Depression. Right. So studios, really at this point, they're just trying to produce revenue by any means necessary. And scandalous movies that get headlines for being controversial make money. Then, as in now. Mm -hmm. So uh, by 1931, the Hollywood Reporter said the code wasn't even a joke. It was just a memory. That is a good line. <laughs> that is a good line. Yeah, and so we've been going through this pre-code era of cinema from 1930, you know, onwards. That 1930 to 1934 period is what's generally referred to as pre-code Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, even though the code's in existence, no one's enforcing it. And that's where we're getting these movies, you know, Dracula, Jekyll and Hyde, all the sound films that we've really seen so far. All the horror. Yeah, exactly. The horror boom, in fact, can coincides directly with this pre-code period. Yeah. So you might be asking yourself, what changed? Hmm, what changed, <laughs> I ask myself. <laughs> so, in 1933, the Roman Catholic National Legion of Decency was founded. That's a name. Yep. And the Legion of Decency rated films independently of the MPPDA, then could declare certain films to be sinful for their parishioners to see. Oh my god. Um, so it was a Catholic organization, they would watch movies that were going to be playing in your parish. Each parish had a Legion of Decency representative. <laughs> they would watch the movie, and if they felt it didn't pass, you know, Catholic moral standards, it was declared a mortal sin for Catholics to go see that movie. Wow. A mortal sin being a sin that you will go to hell for. Yes. Um, there were ratings in the Legion of Decency, so they would say, like, okay, this is for adults only, or this is for men only, or, you oh, know, boy. don't bring your children to this, or, or whatever, right? Or this is good for these age ranges, or just, hey, no one can go see this. This is a sinful movie. Hayes uh, was worried that this would weaken the power of his office, um, essentially because this other organization was now stepping in to kind of... It, it existed solely because they felt he wasn't doing his job, right? He also felt that this could potentially hurt industry profits, and that, more than anything, was what his job was. You know, Hayes's job wasn't really to make Hollywood moral. It was to make everyone think Hollywood was moral so Hollywood would stop losing money to parents' groups throwing fits. <laughs> sure, yeah. Things reached a boiling point in 1934, because A.P. Giannini, uh, who was the founder of the Bank of America... Oh, that's a name. I thought it was an acronym. No, uh, his name is A.P. Giannini. He's Italian. He founded the Bank of America, and he's a Catholic, and he threatened to pull financing from the major studios. Ooh. So that's why they finally started paying attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, on June 13th, 1934, an amendment 
was added to the production code, which established a body called the Production Code Administration. This would be a body to enforce the code, to which all filmmakers would have to submit their films to for a certificate of approval before release. Films without a certificate could not be shown in theaters whose owners were members of the MPPDA, or had films distributed to them by members. And you have to remember this is an era when studios like Paramount and MGM and Fox owned their own theater chains, and if you were an independent chain, you weren't going to make money if major studios weren't sending you movies. So, just to clarify, this code office is reviewing finished films or just the scripts? Everything. All of it. They're, they're on you at every stage of production. Okay. Yeah. Like, you don't get the certificate until the movie's done, but if they don't like your script, that script doesn't get made. Like, you have to get approval at every step. Wow. So this enforcement led to many local censorship boards just disbanding outright. No federal censorship ever took place. So to ensure the oversight of the code's enforcement, Hayes appointed a man named Joseph Breen to be the head of the PCA. This is the guy who's enforcing things. You know, when we talk about the Hayes office or the Hayes Code, Hayes' name gets attached to this sort of era of moral rigidity in films. That's not really Hayes' concern. This is really Breen. Breen's the guy who's laying down the law. Mm -hmm. So Joseph Breen was born in Philadelphia in 1888 to a family of Irish immigrants and was raised strict Roman Catholic. He attended a parish school until 8th grade. He then went to a boys Catholic high school and then went to St. Joseph's College. Seeing a trend here. Yeah. He worked as a reporter for 14 years, first in Philadelphia, then Chicago, and finally in Washington, D.C., where he then joined the U.S. Foreign Service for four years, uh, serving as a diplomat in Kingston, Jamaica, and then later in Ottawa in Canada. Oh, cool. Due to the immense influence that Hollywood cinema had worldwide, after Breen was appointed chief of the PCA, editorials were written to the opinion that he had more influence in standardizing world thought than Mussolini, Hitler, or Stalin. That's quite a claim. Because this is the guy who's deciding what can and cannot go into Hollywood movies, and everyone the world over is watching Hollywood movies. So you would agree with that statement? I think so, especially because the code was not really just designed to like keep you know naughty things out of movies. It was really designed to promote and enforce Catholic morality. Sure. Right? Upon arriving in Hollywood, Breen was reportedly shocked by the attitudes, the actions, and the moral behaviors that were common in the industry, which he saw as a predominantly Jewish-owned industry. Mm -hmm. And so early on, he was judged by those who now had to work with him, like the studio heads, as largely being anti-Semitic in his attitudes. The strict enforcement of the code was said to result in the situation where Jewish-owned businesses were selling Catholic morality to Protestant America. So, after all that, you might be asking, what exactly was in the code? So, Ben, what's in the code, then? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I'd like to go over it with you, uh, and we can maybe talk about or analyze some of the 
points that come up. Sure. I will say that there were some revisions to the code made once they started enforcing it in 1934. Uh, in fact, there were later revisions in later decades as attitudes about social norms changed. But we're going to be looking at it in the 1934 version, not the initial 1930 or any of the later versions. Makes sense, because that's... What's year, being enforced. Yeah, and that's the year we're in in looking at these films. Exactly. Uh, so it's worth saying that um, the amendment that would cause the enforcement of it came into effect on June 13th, and that the effect of that amendment was that any movies made after July 1st, 1934, had to abide by these rules. First, there's a preamble, uh, which I'm going to read for you because it's it's something. Motion picture producers recognize the high trust and confidence which has been placed in them by the people of the world and which have made motion pictures a universal form of entertainment. They recognize their responsibility to the public because of this trust and because entertainment and art are an important influence in the life of a nation. Hence, though regarding motion pictures primarily as entertainment, without any explicit purpose of teaching or propaganda, they know that the motion picture within its own field of entertainment may be directly responsible for spiritual or moral progress, for higher types of social life, and for much correct thinking. During the rapid transition from silent to talking pictures, they realized the necessity and opportunity of subscribing to a code to govern the production of talking pictures and of acknowledging this responsibility. On their part, they ask from the public and from public leaders a sympathetic understanding of their purposes and problems and a spirit of cooperation that will allow them the freedom and opportunity necessary to bring the motion picture to a still higher level of wholesome entertainment for all people. All right. So that's how we're getting started. That's the attitude. Proper thinking. Mm-hmm. Correct thinking. So first section of the code is called general principles, and there's three of these. So this is, you know, just in general. One, no picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. I can see why they would add that. But you know what movie we don't get with that general principle? Any horror movie. <laughs> well, specifically Frankenstein. Yeah. Right? You can't have Frankenstein because he's doing explicitly sinful stuff and he's a sympathetic character. Yeah. Two, correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented. What does that mean? There's uh, an appendix to the code <laughs> where the writers went into greater detail for their reasoning behind everything, which I, I'm not going to read that section in full, um, but, you know, in times like this where you're asking, hey, what the heck, a wide knowledge of life and living is made possible through film. When right standards are consistently presented, the motion picture exercises the most powerful influences. It builds character, develops right ideals, inculcates correct principles, and all this in attractive story form. If motion pictures consistently hold up for admiration high types of characters and present stories that will affect lives for the better, they can become the most powerful natural force for the improvement of mankind. Jeez Louise. Mm -hmm. So correct standards of life meaning, you know, presumably Catholic moral standards. The idea, you know, they say here subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment. Um, so there was some recognition on the parts of the guys like writing this that you needed to have some conflict to have a story, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't totally bland. Um, but what they're really talking about here is, like, you shouldn't be making movies about, like, like, train spotting 
can't be made as a movie under this because it's a movie that's about a bunch of like dope fiends, right? Yeah. You shouldn't hold, be holding those people up as the heroes of the story. Sure. Number three in general principles. Law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. Okay. So again, this is this idea we shouldn't be ridiculing the law. We should have no sympathy for violating the law. So again, we shouldn't be making criminals sympathetic. Uh, and it says human or natural. So human is, you know, your laws that get passed in governments and courts and things. Natural law, philosophically, is something, you know, understood as like scientists who break the law of nature in, in these uh, horror movies. Or it could also be things like, you know, like Dr. Moreau experimenting on animals. That's breaking natural law. It would also be things like homosexuality would be something that would be seen as breaking natural law, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the three general principles. Okay. So, do you think any of those would affect the horror genre, Sarah? A hundred percent. Yeah, of our top five, mm -hmm. it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Old Dark House, Sharkarlin, Island of Lost Souls, The Black Cat. The Black Cat, straight up, in that original intent, <laughs> where Bella Lugosi is a bit more of a morally gray character, just yeah. straight up would not have been able to be made. Yeah, Jekyll and Hyde, no way... Uh, Island of Lost Souls, no way. Old Dark House. I think you might have been able to get Old Dark House through. Maybe. Um, and uh, Short Karen, I think, for sure. Because that's like a movie about the you know, perils of living wrong. Yeah, so that's something. Mm -hmm. And then looking at our lowest five. Uh-huh. Wolf Blood, Le Monstre, Le Manoir du Diable, Le Chateau Hunt, House of Mystery. Hmm. Wolfblood probably uh, would those... have been uh, rejected because of the natural law thing. Sure, sure. Well, except that he doesn't actually get transformed or anything, right? But he gets a blood transfusion from sure, a Sure, that's true. So that would be a problem. In I House think, of Mystery... I think House of Mystery, you'd stick around. But maybe not with some of the more specific things we're about to get into. Okay. So those are general principles. The next section of the code is particular applications. So this is where we get into the nitty-gritty. You know, because those general principles were pretty pretty vague, right? How, how do you interpret those, right? Yeah. This is how you interpret them. So the first section in particular applications, uh, section one, is crimes against the law. Okay. What is the law? <laughs> <laughs> Quote, these shall never be presented in such a way as to throw sympathy with the crime as against law and justice, or to inspire others with a desire for imitation. So you shouldn't be sympathetic to those who break the law, and the law-breaking in a story shouldn't be shown in such a way that someone watching the movie could potentially imitate it. Okay. So the first crime that they talk about, so this is section 1.1, is murder. The technique of murder must be presented in a way that will not inspire imitation. Brutal killings are not to be presented in detail. Yeah, that cuts out quite a few of, of the list. Yeah, exactly. So no brutality... Revenge in modern times shall not be justified. I wonder why that modern times thing. Yeah, so the idea behind this is, like, you could have revenge be a plot element, but it, it can't be justified, right? It, you can't show it as being good or right. Uh, it has to always be wrong, unless you're doing a period piece. And the reason given in the appendix for this is, in lands and ages of less developed civilization and, oh moral, pr and moral principles, revenge may sometimes be presented. This would be the case especially in places where no law exists to cover the crime because of which the revenge is being committed. So, you know, if you're doing a period piece, if you're doing something set in the past, 
you know, that was an era when revenge was maybe more necessary because we didn't have such good laws and good police and stuff. <laughs> sure, code. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the thing about the code in a lot of ways is it's about respect for authority, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, this is not a code that's designed to help you figure out that you're going to overthrow the government or something. <laughs> Methods of crime should not be explicitly presented. I mean, that's the same as, like, that murder one. Mm-hmm, yeah. So this is for things that aren't murder. Theft, robbery, safe-cracking, and dynamiting of trains, mines, and buildings, etc. should not be detailed in method. So, you know, you shouldn't show how someone can rob a bank, right? Something like that first scene of The Dark Knight. You can't have that. What if it's an educational film showing you how to start a mining company? Well, that's how you get around the code, Sarah. <laughs> that's what Dwayne Esper did. Yeah. It's an educational film. I'm the new Esper. Yep. Arson must be subject to the same safeguards. The use of firearms should be restricted to essentials. I mean, that... I can see that. Sure. Methods of smuggling should not be presented. <laughs> so again, smuggling can be a plot point. Just don't show how they did it. Yeah. Illegal drug traffic must never be presented. Straight up. No plots about cocaine, heroin, marijuana, none of it. There are, in, in the world of Hollywood storytelling, there are no illegal drugs. They just don't exist. Okay. The use of liquor in American life, when not required by the plot or for proper characterization, will not be shown. How many years is this after Prohibition? Prohibition ended the year before the code started being enforced. Uh, three years after the code was initially written. So prohibition has been ended for a year. Yes. That makes that, like, the inclusion of that line mm. make a bit more sense. If you need someone to be drinking because it's a plot element, or you need to establish this guy's the town drunk, that's fine. Otherwise, you shouldn't just be showing people casually drinking. Yeah. Uh, so we're finished with section one, which is about crime. Section two is sex. <laughs> Okay. Is the last section money? Crime, <laughs> sex, money? Okay. What is it? Uh, what's that Justin Timberlake song, Love, Sex, Magic? So two. I was thinking of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money. Oh, okay. The sanctity of the institution of marriage and the home shall be upheld. Pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing. What is... That mean low form? That means sex without outside of marriage. Okay. So we're talking about, because the only acceptable form of sex is if they're already married. If they're not married, that's low forms of sex relationships. So that's, you know, premarital sex, adultery, um, sex work, any kind of non-heterosexual relationships, of course, as well, would be covered under that. Mm -hmm. So you cannot show that they are accepted or common. That doesn't say you can't show them at all, but you can't make them seem attractive, appealing, or normal. Sure. Adultery and illicit sex, uh, sometimes necessary plot material, must not be explicitly treated or justified or presented attractively. So you can't explicitly say that someone has done adultery or committed a sex crime, but you can sort of imply it. Uh, you can't have it be justified, and it can't appear to be a nice, great, fun thing to do. Sure. Yes, sex crimes should not be shown as a good thing to do. Keeping in mind that at this time, uh, things that would be covered under sex crimes would be stuff like anal sex, 
uh, or in some states, oral sex, uh, in all states, homosexual sex, uh, etc., etc. Fair. Yeah. Two, scenes of passion. These should not be introduced except when they are definitely essential to the plot. So no gratuitous sex. That's where the fade to black comes mm-hmm. from. Exactly. Excessive and lustful kissing, lustful embraces, suggestive poses, and gestures are not to be shown. I appreciate the intonation that you're bringing <laughs> to these. So this is things like um, the, the unofficial rule was no kisses longer than three seconds. Okay. Stuff like that. Um, so no long kisses, lustful embraces. So, you know, you could imagine what that is in terms of how you're grabbing the other person. Yeah, you uh, need to have a, a Bible width apart. Right, exactly. Suggestive postures, you know, don't look like a Kim Kardashian mag- magazine cover. What about the cover of Nicki Minaj? No, no, okay. definitely not. <laughs> uh, and no, no suggestive gestures either. Uh, you know what I mean. You know what I'm talking about. In general... Passion should be treated in such manner as not to stimulate the lower and baser emotions. So no porn. Yeah. Or, no, or no soft core. Yeah, like, or if you're doing, like, a kissing scene in a movie or something like that, like a romantic scene, it shouldn't get you turned on. Like, you should not watch, you know, a scene that's, like, you can have a scene that says, oh, these two people love each other and they're romantic, but, like, shouldn't get you going watching it at all. You can't control what will turn someone on, though. Yeah, so you just make everything as bland as possible. Sure. Three, seduction or rape. These should never be more than suggested, and then only when essential for the plot. They must never be shown by explicit method. Uh, that's, that's seduction or rape. They are never the proper subject for comedy. I mean, the rape thing. Mm-hmm. Totally with it. Yeah, the I mean, seduction thing, it's two consensual people. It's consensual people. Yeah, I mean, the idea is, is it's someone else sort of convincing someone, right? But, uh, I mean, there's going to be some probably some things in here that'll seem reasonable, you know, even to us now, right? Yeah. It's not like people from the 30s were 100% morally different from us. Yeah. Point four, sex perversion, or any inference to it, is forbidden. And what is it considering sex perversion? Like, I imagine homosexuality is mm-hmm. under there. Uh, polyamory. Okay. Uh, adultery. Impure love. So that's love outside of marriage, just for sexual purposes. Homosexuality, obviously. Pedophilia. You know, anything other than totally vanilla. Heterosexual. Hedro- heterosexual. Married With sex. married missionary style sex. Yeah, exactly. Fade to black before sex. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you can't even have inference to it, right? Yeah. You can't say this guy's gay or this guy's into being whipped or whatever. You know, <laughs> none, none of that. Five. White slavery shall not be treated. Uh, white slavery is a catch-all term that really in this time period would actually refer to sex slavery. It literally does mean, like, slavery of white people, but in the context of the 30s, that would mean the selling of uh, people as uh, sex slaves and that sort of thing. So would they have considered, like, sex work under this in a weird, roundabout way? Um, maybe, sure, but, like... You know, also just plots about women being kidnapped and, and, and used for sexual purposes or certainly any kind of sex for money transaction. 
of any kind would not be seen as okay. Six, miscegenation. What? Sex relationships between white and black people. Oh, boy. Is forbidden. I, like, yeah, it's the 30s, but also, like, what? So, I mean, for one thing, this was a thing that was extremely taboo in America for a very long time. You know? Yeah, I know. Um, even if you weren't thinking about, like, oh, even if you didn't think it was immoral... Hollywood had had trouble where they'd had plots where, like, a white man and a black woman or a black man and a white woman got together, and where those movies were shown, there were riots. Really? Because people were upset. People just didn't want to see that. Uh, So it was strictly forbidden. I mean, I guess you still kind of hear about, like, a commercial shows a biracial married couple or whatever, and people online are, like throwing hissy fits, I guess. Yeah, it's it's still a touchy subject, even though, like, certainly there's been a lot of effort in the last 40, 50 years to make it more normalized. It's still touchy, right? Yeah. Seven, sex hygiene and venereal diseases are not proper subjects for theatrical motion pictures. I appreciate them specifying theatrical, because <laughs> the educational, they're like, yes, perfect, we, we got this. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, just don't don't show it, don't talk about it, shouldn't be in the plots. Basically, what you're really getting from this section is, like, just avoid the topic of sex, if you can, altogether. Yeah. Which, a lot of pre-code movies were definitely big into sex. But yeah, like, even talking about stuff like the white slavery thing or the sex work, as you brought up, like, that's another strike against Jekyll and Hyde, right? Because Ivy's a a sex worker in that movie. Point eight, scenes of actual childbirth, in fact or in silhouette, are never to be presented. (laughs) Women, you're not allowed to do anything. Yep. Not even the one thing that the Catholics want you to do most. Yeah, we just shouldn't see it. It's okay to like, oh, this child has been born. We just don't want to see it. It's it's gross. All right. I mean, it is a gross thing. <laughs> oh, boy. I have a friend who hates childbirth scenes in movies and TV, so I think he'd be okay with this. Show it. Cool. Whatever. The miracle of childbirth is such a lie. Anyways, go go on. Oh, dear. Um, okay, point nine. Uh, children's sex organs are never to be exposed. Good. All right, we're on to section three. It's fairly short. Okay. Section three is vulgarity. The treatment of low, disgusting, unpleasant, though not necessarily evil, subjects <laughs> should be guided always by the dictates of good taste and a proper regard for the sensibilities of the audience. So basically, you know, we're talking about, like, uh, you know, if you want to do a scene down at, like, a a seedy tavern, uh, just, you know, keep it within good taste. Don't offend the sensibilities of your audience. Obscenity in word, gesture, reference, song, joke, or by suggestion, even when likely to be understood only by a part of the audience, is forbidden. I feel like that little, like, bit at the end Mm -hmm. is an attempt to handle the kind of coding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're trying to head that off at the pass, right? They're they're saying that that's not a defense, right? If you, if they catch you and they go, oh, you know what? When you say gay here, what do you really mean? And if your defense is to be like, ah, most people aren't going to get that reference. They're going to be like, that's not a defense. Take it out. So you really had to make sure you were saying stuff that, like, people weren't going to catch when they looked over your stuff. Yeah. Because um, it wasn't a valid defense. Yeah, Cary Grant is just happy in that scene. Right. And a Gunsel's just a guy who holds a gun, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. 
pointed profanity. This includes God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless used reverently. <laughs> Hell, S-O-B, damn, God, or other profane or vulgar expressions, however used, is forbidden. No swearing. No swearing. No cussing. Section six, costumes. All right. Complete nudity is never permitted. This includes nudity in fact, or in silhouette, or any licentious notice thereof by any characters in the pictures. Meaning, you know, you can't be nude in the movie. Can't be nude behind a, a drape in the movie, right? Can't be nude in silhouette in the movie. Can't say you're about to go off and get naked in the movie. Yeah. Clothes are always on people, all the time, from the time you are born to the time you die. Undressing scenes should be avoided and never used, save where essential to the plot. Look, we understand you gotta put people in the seats, but... Yeah. It's, it's really what they're trying to stop you from doing with all this essential to the plot stuff, is like the gratuitous stuff. Indecent or undue exposure is forbidden. So, you know, no low-rise jeans. You know, no... <laughs> No bra straps showing. Yeah. You know. Dancing costumes intended to permit undue exposure of indecent movements in the dance are forbidden. Gee, I wonder who they are talking about yeah, in reference to this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is basically no belly dancer costumes is really what this is. but Or like anything with women. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of dancing, section seven is dances. Dances suggesting or representing sexual actions or indecent passion are forbidden. They would really have not liked Anaconda by Nicki Minaj. No, that's violating thousands of these rules by the dozen. No twerking. No twerking. Dances which emphasize indecent movements are to be regarded as obscene. Uh, section 8 is religion. No film or episode may throw ridicule on any religious faith. There's no asterisk of specifically Catholicism. No, just, just you can't ridicule any religious faith. Do you think they would consider non-Western faiths? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was, like, one of the things the code was really about was, like, you can't insult any religions and you can't insult any ethnicities. Well, that's something. Yeah, it was used to stop Hollywood studios from making anti-Nazi movies before World War II started, though, because they oh. were considered insulting to Germans. So it wasn't until the Nazis became, like, a wartime enemy that Hollywood studios could make anti-Nazi movies. Okay. But yeah, uh, so House of Mystery, for example, doesn't get by. Yeah. Because it's uh, basically throwing ridicule on the Hindu faith, so it can't be a movie. Ministers of religion in their character as ministers of religion, should not be used as comic characters or as villains. So again, um, like Frollo in Hunchback of Notre Dame is the big example of this. You can't have a villainous priest, uh, straight up. Ceremonies of any definite religion should be carefully and respectfully handled. Definite religion basically meaning, like, if you make up a religion, that's a different story if it's fictional, <laughs> right? Sure. But if, you, if we can point to this and say, oh, we know what that is, that's this religion. There's no such thing as a hypocr uh, hypocritical priest or uh, an evil one or, you know, a, a, a priest or a religion uh, in hierarchy that's bad at all. And there's where you really see the don't question the authority exactly. type of deal. Yeah. Uh, section 9 is locations, which just says the treatment of bedrooms must be governed by good taste and delicacy. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, section 10 
is national feelings. Point one being the use of the flag shall be consistently respectful. All right. That opinion has been maintained in the States. <laughs> uh, and point two is the history, institutions, prominent people, and citizenry of all nations shall be represented fairly. And that's, that's again, that thing where it's like, they were like, you can't make anti-Nazi movies. Yeah. That's where that comes in. You, ca- you can't be bigoted in your movies. Uh, this, is, this is one I really like. Uh, section 11 is titles. Salacious, indecent, or obscene titles shall not be used. <laughs> well, there's like half the horror genre right there. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, don't call your movie Sex Maniac. That's straight out. A lot of movie titles couldn't have hell in them anymore. Like Hell's Angels is a movie title, like no way. Uh, And then finally, the final section is section 12. Repellent subjects. The following subjects must be treated within the careful limits of good taste. Actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishments for crime. Third degree methods. Okay. That's, uh, That's interrogation torture. Brutality. And possible gruesomeness. All of horror. Yeah. Branding of people or animals. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Apparent cruelty to children or animals. The sale of women or a woman selling her virtue. Surgical operations. (laughs) And that's the code. That's the production code. That's everything you can't do. All right. So do you think this will have any kind of impact on horror movies going forward? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Like, you can even just see the, like, craziness of the horror genre in the 70s when, like, this has been repealed as, like, evidence for how much this impacts horror. Yeah, it's, it's you know, those 70s horror movies are, it's like a, an explosion of, like, ah, oh, we can do whatever we want now, you yeah. know? Yeah, like, I think a lot of the movies on our list would have difficulty with this. And, I, and, and you know, we've talked about how, like, Island of Lost Souls was never reissued after the code went into effect, how... Uh, when Jekyll and Hyde was reissued, they cut all of Miriam Hopkins out of it. Yeah, um, Freaks. Yeah, Freaks is a big one. Um, the scene where uh, the monster throws, um, what's her name? The girl into the, uh, Maria, into the water and she drowns. Like, that's not in the postcode version of Frankenstein when they re-released it. Because you can't show cruelty to children, yeah. right? Yeah, Murders in the Rue Morgue never came out again after the code went into effect. It had a hard enough time before the code happened. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any other thoughts on the the production code, Sarah? It's interesting to think how, like, there are parts of the code that I'm like, yeah, that's a good thing. But when you see it actually implemented, it's disastrous for representation, for example. Right. Um, It's like, oh, we can't make fun of... Or, like, it's suddenly, like, a bit more difficult or contentious to show other ethnicities besides white cool we'll just stick with white people then that that'll be the easiest thing yeah exactly it's same with women like oh it's tough to have women do literally anything in this code that Mm. doesn't come off as sexual cool we'll just stick with men yeah that's that's a really good insight i think you're absolutely right i think that's totally what happened was you know people talk about um these old-fashioned attitudes of what female characters had to be like and we've seen you know some some women characters in some of these earlier movies that go against that and the code doesn't say you know women have to be docile 
you know, and never talk and never express an opinion or anything. But the code just says, you know, there's so many things that your female characters can't do that, you know, I think you're totally right in identifying that the predominantly male film industry would just go, oh, we'll just not have women then. It's That's just going to be easier than having to fight with the fight with Joseph Breen, right? Yeah. And same with, I think you're totally bang on the mark with the ethnicities thing. Like, oh, well, I don't know how to portray a black character that isn't a stereotype or a joke, so I guess I just won't. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what happens. Um, nobody wanted to say, oh, well, I guess we'll have to learn how to respect those cultures respectfully. <laughs> like, no, no one said that. Yeah. Everyone just went, eh, all right, no more brown people. Is there anything on the list that you like that either you know um, it went through uh, in like a reissue with no problem or you think would have been fine? Uh, the mummy probably wouldn't have gotten away without cuts. Maybe it did. I can't. Uh, I guess its whole premise is like, I don't know if that would uh, violate the like don't disrespect other nations and ethnicities thing. Or yeah, like the or other, the natural law, the natural law stuff, or like the sexuality stuff again. Supernatural for sure isn't getting past the code. Not a lot, Sarah. Black Moon ain't getting past the code. No. A lot of this stuff isn't like the Night only... of Terror. Hmm. Maybe Night of Terror has that whole stuff about like inventing a way to like cheat death and so on. But maybe. Um. I think the Mummy might too. Just depending on how you interpreted it, it's it was it was pretty tame. In terms of what's in the top ten, I think Old Dark House might make it past the code if you cut a little bit here and there, just some trims. Yeah. Um, and I think Phantom Carriage would probably make it past the code because it's the kind of moralizing story that the code wants, really. Yeah, Cabinet Doctor Caligari is not getting past the code. It's yeah. telling you not to trust authority, and you should absolutely trust authority, Sarah. In all forms. They have your best interest at heart. Yes. Yeah, it's it's very paternalistic, the tone of it. That's the thing, right? It's very... The... Catholicism? Being paternalistic? <laughs> <laughs> the intent behind it isn't bad. It's that it was a thing that was blanket applied to all movies, right? There was no wiggle room to do anything outside of it. Unless you wanted to do the Dwayne Esper route and make quote-unquote educational films that really were just about flouting the code, though. You know, they weren't about trying to tell different kinds of stories. No. Uh, so our first Hollywood film that's going to fall under this auspice of the production code is going to be Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of think about... Um, like, we've seen Bride of Frankenstein before. Yeah. But to think about why that film feels different from the first film... Um, and how we can trace it to the introduction of the code, or the enforcement of the code, I should specify. Yeah, um, I've never really, you know, looked at it in that way. I know, you know, I've often identified a tonal difference between those movies. I mean, people love Bride of Frankenstein. It's a very well-respected, very highly critically acclaimed film. Horror fans love it. But here it is. It's a post-code film, and, you know, I'm going to be paying extra attention to how it treats Frankenstein himself, because... The code sort of says that, like, that's not a character who should be able to exist, right? Yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. If you'd like to take a look at the films that we've kind of been discussing and to see which ones would definitely not pass the code, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we update every Wednesday. This is a special episode, so it came out on a special date. But on Wednesday, our Bride of Frankenstein episode is going to be going up. So keep an eye out for that on SoundCloud, iTunes, or however you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to mention anything about the code to us, you can contact us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene or email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. But we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.